It's good to be here this morning. Uh, before I get started, I want you to just think of something in your head. I want you to have a picture in your head of the, if I were to ask you, what was the most spiritual thing you did this past week? All right. In, in the past seven days, what would in your head, just in your head, it, what would be the most spiritual thing that you did? Do you, do you have something in your mind? If not, we're just going to just going to sit here. No, I'm just, it, I, I want you to picture something. And the reason I want you to do that is because I, I, I think that after we read some in the scripture this morning, I, I think that the thing that you have in your mind may not actually be the most spiritual thing you did. But let's let's move on first and look at some other things before we get back to that. And we are in a series of talks here at BlackRock called Roots. And this is, you're going to get to hear from a variety of different pastors over the next few weeks. You've actually, two weeks ago, Pastor Steve talked, last week Pastor Dan talked, this week I'm here. I actually don't know who's here next week, but someone will be here and they'll be great. Uh, and, and we are all talking about a, a passage or a, a part of the Bible that roots us in our faith. It's that drives us, it, it's that excites us about our faith. And we get to share with you a little bit about that. And to understand the passage I picked, you, you, you might need to know a little bit about me. All right, I grew up in a super Christian family. I, I'm, not, I'm not just talking about a family who went to church and prayed before meals. I'm talking super Christian. My parents actually became Christians right around the time I was born. And from the time they did, they were fired up. My dad left his job as a pilot in the Air Force, went to seminary, did that for a few years, then raised money. And then when I was six years old, my parents moved my entire family. I have two older brothers and myself to Sierra Leone, West Africa. Now, this is what I looked like when I was six years old. Look at that guy. Isn't he cute? Something happens as you get older. And I, I think if I had that suit, I would wear it. And this is what happens when you take that kid to Africa and sit him down next to a couple baboons, this is myself on the left and my older brother there on the right. So, you know, as I said, my parents weren't just like, you know, nice people and Christians. They were like crazy Christians, go to Africa, live in a tin house without electricity. They were that kind of Christians. Not only that, when I was 11 years old, we moved back to the U.S. And when we moved back to the U.S., my dad became a pastor. So again, super Christian. When I was in the youth group, they had something called a quiz team. I don't know, you, some of you will know what that is. And I was on the quiz team, all right? And that meant they would like give you a book of the Bible for that year, and you would study that book of the Bible, and then you would go and compete against other churches. And they had these benches, all right? And there were four seats on the bench, and uh, the, the seats were wired so that when you jumped up, your buzzer went off. So they would start to read a question. Whoever jumped up first, that's the person that got to answer. All right. Now, I was not the smartest person on our quiz team by any stretch. The smartest person was Melissa Barkalo. All right. Melissa Barkalo is now a doctor. She's married to a guy who's got a Ph.D. She was the smart one. She was the valedictorian at my high school. I was the fast one. I realized that if you sat right near the edge of these little seats, all you had to do was basically flinch one cheek. And boom, I was the one-cheek wonder of the quiz team. That you could just, boom, jump real quick. And so if I knew the answer, I was fast. Now, I tell you these stories mainly to show pictures of how cute I was. That's, uh, that's you know. But also to let you know, I, I grew up in a super Christian family. Like crazy Christian. Like, you know, quiz teams and Africa and all these kind of things. And yet, working in the church was the last thing I wanted to do. It was not 
what I had planned to do. I went off to college, studied economics. I, I went to graduate school, studied, studied history. I did not want to do what I am doing today. And, and I think it was because I had a misconception of what church was about. Even though my parents modeled what it should be really well, I, I had a misconception of what it was about. And because of that, I, I didn't have the passion for my own faith and the passion for what God wants to do in this world. So I want to read a story this morning. And if you grew up in a churchy environment like I did, you've heard this probably many times before. It's a pretty common story that is told that Jesus shared. But it contains two words that to me change the way I understand my own faith and the church. And so I want to share that with you. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. You can turn there or it'll be on the screen. And you can follow along and try to listen for those two words that changed my understanding and I hope will influence you as well. It says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. So I hope you kind of understand the scene here. Everywhere Jesus went, literally thousands of people would gather around. They wanted to see what he was going to do. And they wanted to hear what he was going to say. And there were varieties of people. It wasn't just kind of one demographic. There were varieties. This particular verse mentions four specific groups of people. It mentions uh, tax collectors and sinners. It mentions Pharisees and teachers of the law. And the first two of those, the tax collectors and sinners, they were the non-churchy types. They didn't follow the rules of church or the synagogue very well. And because of that, they were kind of looked down upon and and not, not... you know, the higher echelon of society. On the other hand, it mentions the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And and they were the ones who did a really good job of following the rules. And and they were the kind of known as being the churchy types. And what's interesting is if you look at Jesus's life, and this passage shows that he actually chose to spend more time with the non-churchy types. And it made people upset. In fact, you can see right there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're like, wait a minute, this guy, he welcomes sinners and tax collectors. He hangs out with those non-churchy types. Why does he do that? And Jesus tells this little story to explain why he does it. The story is pretty self-explanatory. There's a hundred sheep. One of them gets lost. The shepherd goes out, finds that one, brings it back, and he celebrates with his family that he found that lost sheep. And then he... Jesus gives this one little verse, this one little sentence that explains how this relates to God, the kingdom of heaven, and I think to all of us here today. And that one little verse says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That two words right there, more rejoicing, is interesting. It's interesting because it lets us know that in some way God is more excited 
about reaching people outside the church than he is helping those of us in the church get a little bit better. And and it's kind of a, I, I, I don't know if surprising or shocking thing to think that God is actually more excited about those of us outside this room than he may be about us. That's an interesting thing to think about. More rejoicing. Now, oftentimes we think, well, wait a minute. No, isn't the church about making me a little bit better? But the truth is, us getting better is a byproduct and not the purpose of what God's about. And if we get those confused, it creates a lack of passion and an excitement about our own faith and a lack of passion and excitement about what the church is about. For instance, I know a lot of people in the church, most people that I know in the church, they kind of feel bad that they don't do what we think of as spiritual stuff enough. Most people feel like, man, I should kind of read my Bible more. I should pray more. But, I, you know, it's kind of hard. I don't have time. I might find it kind of boring. I, I, you know, I just don't do it. Now, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, actually, I had a friend who came to me. He was a non-churchy type of person. And he had some questions about the Bible. He had kind of read this book and heard some things on TV about Jesus. And, and so he, he came to me and he said, hey, what, what's going on? What is this? And it was something that, I, you know, right off the tip of my tongue, I didn't know. So you know what it did? It gave me huge motivation to actually go and read the Bible and actually read commentaries about it and try to figure out, hey, what does the Bible actually say? Why? So I could explain it to my friend who was outside the church. I had another friend who was struggling with some anxiety and stress, and it created in me a passion to pray for her. Because she was struggling with these things, and I wanted to ask God to help her. Often, we sometimes lack motivation because it's hard to get motivated to get a little bit better. I'm not that motivated to make myself a little bit better person. And so if we come to church thinking that, we lack our motivation. It's kind of like we all know that we should eat our vegetables, right? We all know you're supposed to eat your vegetables. It's going to be better for you if you eat your vegetables. However, most of the time I'd rather eat the chicken wings than the vegetables, right? I mean, mean, man, that would be so much better. Now, I, I heard an interview recently with the guy Hugh Jackman. You know, he's Wolverine in these movies. And in the, in the movie, I haven't seen the movie, but in the movie, he's like there without his shirt on. And he's like this super buffed guy, and he's got these things sticking out of his hands, right? And he mentioned that he was on this super intense diet, that he could only eat like certain times of the day that he worked out. And his motivation was he was getting paid millions of dollars to be in this movie. Right? If you're an Olympic athlete, there's a lot more motivation to eat the right foods because you have something you're going towards. The truth is our motivation for even our own spiritual life should be that the purpose of our life and the church in general is to reach those outside. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, the truth is the church is not so much for you. In fact, you are the church and you exist for those outside. Right? If you're here today and you're a follower, the church isn't for you. You are the church and you exist for those outside. Everything we do inside the church, everything you do for your own personal spiritual life, everything should be oriented around the primary purpose that we're here on earth for. 
which is to help those outside. For those of us who are Christians, getting together with other Christians should be the practice and the encouragement and the motivation to go spend time outside. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that church and gathering together as Christians is unimportant. In fact, what we are doing here this morning and attending church on a regular basis and having a close community of Christians is essential. It's essential for us carrying out this mission and this purpose. That's why Hebrews 10:24 says, "Don't stop meeting together." But then it says, "The reason we're meeting to don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another." The purpose why we come together is to equip ourselves to go out. The purpose why we come together is to encourage and support each other so that we go out. Some of you may say, well, yes, but wait, isn't the point of church to make disciples? Yes, it is. But the true measure of a disciple is someone who influences those outside, who reaches those outside. It's not how well you are in church. How well you do here. It leads to a different mentality of church. Sometimes we think of church as kind of like a greenhouse. It's this safe place that we can come. And we plant things and things grow really nice. And it's great. It's climate controlled. It's everything is nice inside this greenhouse. But the truth is God did not create us to live or work in a greenhouse. He created us to be gardeners who go out. Every single one of us was created to be a gardener who goes out and works in the world to make the world more of what God created it to be. To share God's love and grace and beauty with everyone outside. That's what he created us to be. Some of you are still going, but wait a minute. What about me? I'm kind of tired and I'm stressed out and I'm confused and I'm lonely and I'm, I'm insecure. What about me? And... Yes, God cares deeply about you. Deeply about you. More than you can imagine. Yes, God says, come to me all those who are weary and I'll give you rest. God says, there's no need to be insecure or lonely. You can rest in the fact that he loves you. He created you. He designed you. But The Bible also says that one of the greatest ways that we actually transform ourselves, that we grow in those areas, is actually by denying ourselves and serving others. Which is why the Bible goes on to say whoever wants to save their life must lose it. The Bible goes on to say deny yourself, take up your cross daily. It goes on to say think of others better than yourselves. The truth is we cannot live outside the way we are created to live unless we have the community inside the church that it was created to be. And that's why that leads me to a little bit of a question. The question it leads me to is, if the church, which is you, exists for those outside the church, then are you too churchy or not churchy enough? Are you too churchy or not churchy enough? If you're too churchy, most of your friends are from church. Most of the people you hang out with and do stuff with are from church. In fact, people outside the church may think you're a little odd. If you're too churchy, you often use phrases in your normal conversation like blood of the lamb and hedge of protection. 
Now, those have great meaning, but if you use those in casual conversation, you're probably too churchy. If you are uncomfortable speaking to people who have different values than you, who have different lifestyles than you, if you are uncomfortable speaking to people like that, you're probably too churchy. However, if you struggle to live out your faith, if you don't have a community of people that knows what's going on in your life, that prays for you, that encourages you, you're probably not churchy enough. If you don't have that community that is supporting you, that is helping you understand what your life's about, that's living, your, that, that's living life with you and encouraging you and giving you the strength to go out, you are probably not churchy enough. Often when I do this, I ask people to take out their cell phones. You can do that. Some, often we tell you to put your cell phones away. You can take it out, actually, if you want. You can take it out, and I ask you to kind of look in your contacts, all right? If you look at the contacts of your cell phone, and, and, and just sort of go through and ask yourself, is this person in my cell phone a church person or a not church person? All right? When I look at it, it comes up that, uh, some reason it came up to my wife. I'll go to A's. That's nice that it did. If I look at this, this is non-church, churchy, churchy, non-church, 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 church, 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 Apple Inc. I don't know why it goes to Apple Inc. But anyway, church, church. If I look at my contacts, I'm a pretty churchy person. I work in the church. That becomes harder for me. The truth is you have an advantage over what I do. If you do not work in a Christian environment, you have an advantage. Sometimes people come to me and, and, and they say, you know, they'll ask me, hey, hey, Josh, you're, you're a pastor. Can you pray for so-and-so, someone in my family, someone that? And, and I will say to them, I'd, I'd love to pray for whatever your friend or family member. But the reason they're coming is they somehow think I'm more spiritual than they are, right? Because I, somehow I work in the church. And the truth is, if the most spiritual thing we can do is spend time with people outside the church... I'm less spiritual than most of you. You have an advantage over me. I, I'm more, I, you actually get to do the most spiritual things. I tell people one of the most spiritual things I do is coach my kids' sports teams. Right? That's one of the most spiritual things I do because I spend way too much time with churchy people. And there I get to actually show God's love and grace and beauty to kids and their parents and their families. That's the most spiritual thing I do. That's why I asked you that question. What is the most spiritual thing you do? Because my guess is you didn't come up with spending time with people outside the church. If you work in an environment where it's mostly people who are not Christians, that's one of the greatest places you can do. I had a friend who worked at a very negative work environment. They were just, it was kind of bitter people that didn't treat each other well. There was just bad dynamics at her workplace. And for a while, she, it was getting her really down. She was kind of, you know, she'd wake up in the morning and not want to go to work because of that. And then she began to understand that this is what life is about. This is what the Christian life is about. And it changed her perspective of going to work. She was like, I get to go in this place. And yes, it's a negative environment. Yes, it's a place where people don't treat each other the way they should. But that's where God would want me to be. That's where God would want me to be. That's where I can be that gardener. I can help in such little ways, even if it's just a kind word to one of my coworkers that is mean. That's, in a little way, planting beauty in that environment. 
The truth is, if you work in a difficult place, if you have family members that are difficult, that's one of the greatest opportunities you have to serve God, to show love. And that's what helped me change the way I thought about my own spiritual life and change what I thought about the church. I realized that God has two top priorities. God has two top priorities. The first is that there are people living separated from God. There are people who don't understand who God is, that God loves them, cared for them, and died for them. And we have the privilege of being able to share that beautiful message with people. And the second is that there are people who are not living as God designed. There are people who are stressed out, who are lonely, who are hungry, who are homeless. There are people who are not living as God designed and are beautiful goal, the thing that we were created, the reason Jesus saved us is so that we can go and show grace and beauty to those all around us every day. One of the great things I love about Black Rock Congregational Church is we actually do this better than most churches I know. We do this in amazing ways. There's a team right now, people in Nigeria doing medical work. Just recently, 90 people got back from a missions trip in West Virginia. There's a group of people, you can see them with bright shirts like Alan Dodd, who are, going to, uh, who are going to Royal Family Kids Camp today to serve kids who are in foster care. We're in a church that gives over a quarter of its budget away just to help people around. Not only that, almost every nonprofit in our region is somehow served by members of Black Rock Congregational Church. We do this better than most churches, and I'm excited to be a part of this church. But I also know that God has more planned for us. I also know that there's more in this room, that if every single one of us who is sitting here today understood this mindset, it would change the way we see our lives and it would change our community. I went from being a guy who didn't want to work at the church even though I had grown up, again, with a family that modeled this very well, to a person who believes deeply that the local church is the hope of the world. The church is the one institution created by God to go out and share hope and beauty and love and joy and peace with the entire world. That's what we were designed to do. That's what we were created to do. And it is our privilege to do that. A few months ago, we had a baptism service. And at that service, we got to hear a little bit about people's stories. They shared a little bit about where they were and where they are now. They shared a little bit about the place where they were. It was a place separated from God, not living in God designed, and how through understanding who God is and living for Him, they began to love Him more deeply and live more for Him. So I wanted to end my sermon with sharing just a little bit so you guys can hear what it looks like to be able to go and share this with people outside. Let's watch this now.
everything felt like it was crashing down around me, and I was ready to give up. I don't know what giving up would have meant for me that day, but I'm glad I didn't have to find out. At the age of 24, I found myself pregnant, single, jobless, with everything crashing down. I had a decision to make and a lot of pressure from certain people in my life that didn't want me to become a single mom statistic. just received a traumatic brain injury from competitive cheerleading and I was at the lowest point in my life. I had 4% working memory and lost everything I knew. The doctors told me that I would never be able to play sports again, would likely never graduate high school nor learn to drive a car. My entire life was flipped upside down and inside out. It wasn't, it wasn't until a series of tragedies in my family and my life that I hit bottom. The first was then my brother received a traumatic brain injury. depleted any fight I had left, leaving me totally exhausted, vulnerable, and broken. Life gave me no break to rest or catch up. It was the darkest, loneliest place. Needless to say, I became addicted to the party lifestyle. And and addicted to painkillers. I hated my lifestyle, but knew that I couldn't escape it myself. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I pray that in some way I can come forward now to help others heal as I have. Continually, God has shown me over and over that his ways lead to life and that by being obedient to him is the only choice for me. I was very negative and, you know, now I look at everything as a positive and it's just truly blessing to see this good moment right now. People can have a relationship with co-workers, with families, with friends, but I cannot imagine how to have a relationship with God. God loves me so much, unconditionally and always with me. Since my injury, I have graduated high school, received my driver's license. I'm an honor student in college and have a number of truly special people in my life who are dear to me and support me now. There were so many instances where my life should have been lost, yet God had his protective bubble around me because he always knew I would feel his love. One of no comparison, and his love continues to amaze me, and today is a public display. 